Lord, as we gather this morning, we gather at the beginning of the Advent season. It's a time of joy and expectation and of hope. And yet we acknowledge that for many of us, our hearts are heavy. God, you don't always work the way that we expect you to or even the way that we want you to. But God, thank you that you are still good. Thank you for the hope that Jessica and Linda had in you. Thank you for the hope that we have, that we can rejoice with them, that their, their pain is ended, and their joy has only just begun. But God, we do pray for those whom they have left here. We pray for Mike, for Raylin and Adelie and Amelia. We pray that they would know your comfort and your arms wrapped around them this morning. We pray for Ken and for their whole family, that they would know your peace and your comfort this morning. God, as we continue in worship this morning, may what we do and what we say and what we sing give honor and glory to you. As we open your word together, I pray that you would get me out of the way. Speak to me, speak through me this day. In Jesus' name, amen. As we continue in worship, I would uh, invite you to turn with me to the Christmas story in the Gospel of John. Now, John doesn't include for us the manger or the shepherds or the wise men. Uh, in fact, he goes back well before that. But I would like us to read John 1 to 18 as we see what, how he captures the Christmas story. And I'd invite you to stand as you're able as we open God's word together. John 1, beginning with verse 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to that light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. 
we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, he has made him known. May God add his blessing to his word. Please be seated. You might have gathered that our overall theme for Advent this year is light of the world. And lights, of course, are a central part of this season. Just on Friday, we hung up the lights on our front porch at home, and we draped strings of lights around our Christmas tree. Hopefully this afternoon we'll get some ornaments on there. We had a lot of volunteers here at the church yesterday getting the building decorated for the Advent season. We couldn't have done it without everybody who was there, so thank you for that. Now, there might be some contrarians among us who would point out that a lot of the trappings of Christmas are maybe a bit out of place. Now, the earliest Christians certainly didn't celebrate Christmas as a holiday, as far as we can tell. It didn't seem to be important to them to remember Jesus' exact birthday. Near as we can figure out, it wasn't in the winter at all. But as Christianity expanded into Europe, the end of December was a convenient time for a holiday to counter a lot of the pagan solstice celebrations and to borrow and reinterpret some of their symbols. So the Yule log, the mistletoe, the Christmas tree, and yes, the lights, You could argue that they don't really have all that much to do with that first Christmas. But, light is actually an incredibly significant part of Scripture. In the opening lines of Genesis, as his first recorded act of creation, God said, let there be light. And God saw that the light was good. In fact, light is part of God's very nature. We're told that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. The psalmist says, the Lord is God and he has made his light shine upon us. And in our passage that we just read, we see that in Jesus Christ was life and that life was the light of all mankind. Jesus himself proclaimed, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So it's not at all wrong for us to remember Christmas as that pivotal point in history when God's light entered the world in a tangible, in a personal way through that baby in the manger. But while it was surprising that Jesus of Nazareth claimed that he was the light of the world and the religious leaders saw that as blasphemy, It's even more surprising, I think, that he didn't stop there because he told his disciples in Matthew 5, 14, you are the light of the world. Now, you notice something kind of wrong here? The light of the world describes 
one light, singular, unique, distinct. You can't really have two. Just like in a football game, you can't have two winners. Either Ohio St <laughs> You know, I, I want to keep my job, so let's, let's just move on. <clears throat> How can Jesus say, I am the light of the world, and then turn around and say, you are the light of the world? Well, because there is just the one light. And we can only be the light of the world if we have his light in us. But what is that light? Well, sometimes we see it described by comparing it to the sun. In Matthew, quoting Isaiah 9, just as uh, Olivia read earlier, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. <clears throat> On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. But it seems that more often this light is pictured as a lamp. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. Now, if you close your eyes and picture a lamp, what do you see? Maybe something like this? Or, you know, given the time of year, maybe you think of this. Maybe not. Or you might remember that they didn't have electricity back in Jesus' day, so you picture a lantern or a candle. But you know, for much of human history, a lamp was something that burned oil. And today we think of oil mostly as a lubricant for machinery. You change the oil in your car, right? You should. As a car guy, I know that the fastest way to start a fight in an online car forum is just to ask the question, what type of oil should I use and how often should I change it? Guaranteed, dozens of posts, sharp disagreement, alternative facts, personal attacks. It's more effective than mentioning politics around the Thanksgiving table. Now, for the record, one of the neat things about knowing the entire history of my dad's old BMW that I now have, is knowing that it's only ever had Pennzoil in it. Why? I don't know. It's just what my dad always used, and after 50 years, I don't see any reason to change it. I change the oil, I just don't change the brand. But you know, according to our faith and practice, all church members here are technically required to use Quaker State. If you didn't get that, in January we're going to be offering a Welcome to Friends class and you can learn more about our tradition and our church and you'll, you'll get the joke then. But motor oil isn't the oil for lamps. The, the fumes would get you within a couple minutes. It's even worse than essential oils. People used, used to use kerosene in lamps and before that, whale oil. Anybody read Moby Dick? Anybody remember reading Moby Dick? But in biblical times, most lamps burned olive oil. Ginger, I borrowed this from our kitchen. Um, <laughs> the lamps were usually simple 
clay bowls with a spout to hold the cloth wick. You know, olive oil was kind of a miracle product of the ancient world. It could be used for cooking, as most of us use it today. It was used as part of sacrifices in the temple. It was poured on wounds to protect them and promote healing. It was used for anointing priests or kings to commission them for their roles. And those in need of healing were, would be anointed with oil. In fact, James writes, is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. But olive oil was also important for light. It burned clean without much smoke or smell. It was what fueled the lamp that burned constantly in the temple. It was, in fact, a renewable resource and a major export for Israel. We're told that King Solomon sent olive oil as part of the payment to Syria for materials to build the temple. And Elisha performed a miracle for a widow. God multiplied her oil, providing enough money when she sold it to care for her and her sons and to have enough to live on. Now, why do I mention all of this and, and light this oil lamp here, which is very dangerous to do because it's probably going to burn out in five minutes and ruin my whole metaphor? But I mention that and I light this lamp because it, I think it helps us to understand what it means for us to be lamps with Jesus' light in us so that we can be what he calls us to be, the light of the world. So first, an important thing to realize about lamps is that just because we have light doesn't mean there won't be darkness. A lamp provides warmth and light. It pushes back the darkness, but it's not like the sun. The light from one lamp only reaches so far. In the passage we read earlier, John proclaims, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. The darkness has not overcome it, but that doesn't mean it won't try. We've been reminded of that this week. Death does not have the victory for those who are in Christ Jesus but it still brings pain for those who are left behind. And it's a reminder that the darkness is still around us. But on the way to Gethsemane, on the night he was betrayed, Jesus told his disciples, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. The darkness has not overcome the light. In fact, it's just the opposite. 
John, near the end of his life, received a great vision of times to come and of our ultimate hope. He saw the eternal home of all who follow Christ the Lamb, and he described it like this. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. One day there will be no more night, no more darkness. One day he will wipe every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Until then, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The second thing we need to learn as lamps is that we can't make our own light. Lamps don't light themselves. You need to touch the wick with a flame to get it to start burning. And in the same way, we need to connect with the light of Jesus to allow him to light our lamps. Jesus' life is the light of all mankind, and the gospel writer is careful to set the record straight about John the Baptist. He himself was not the light, he writes. He came only as a witness to the light. King David also understood this. He wrote, for it is you who light my lamp, the Lord my God lightens my darkness. But what does that mean? I think we get an idea, as I, as I shared with the rest of the staff this past week, we get an idea in Luke chapter 11. Normally I'd start reading at verse 33, but that's where Jesus talks about putting a lamp under a bowl. But I think we only really understand what he says there if we back up a few verses. So let me start reading at Luke 11, verse 29. <clears throat> As the crowds increased, Jesus said, this is a wicked generation. It asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, so also will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with the people of this generation and condemn them, for she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. No one lights a lamp and puts it in a place where it will be hidden or under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand so that those who come in may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eyes are healthy, your whole body also is full of light. But when they are unhealthy, your body also is full of darkness. See to it then that the light within you is not darkness. Therefore, if your whole body is full of light and no part of it dark, it will be just as full of light as when a lamp shines its light on you. Now, why this talk of eyes with lamps? 
Well, consider what Jesus had just said. His wicked generation is asking for a sign. And why are they wicked? Because the greatest sign is right there in front of them, and they refuse to see it. The light of the world is in front of them, and they don't recognize him. Instead, they continue going about in darkness. The tragedy is they're only blind because they've closed their eyes. If they would just open their eyes toward Jesus, the light would flood in, and they would be full of light. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon said, if you do not see Jesus, it is not because he has hidden himself in darkness, but because your eyes are blinded. But let's not be too hard on folks, because how often do all of us do the same thing? We might not even realize it, but we base our faith on a sign from God. God, if you'll just provide a job for me, God, if you'll just restore this relationship. God, if you'll just heal her. Then we will trust you. Then we will praise you. Then we will follow you. None of those prayers are bad things to pray for. We should pray, give us this day our daily bread. We should pray for reconciliation. We should pray for healing. But as Pastor Rich reminded us at the Thanksgiving Eve service last week, we can't follow God based on whether he does what we want him to do. Then our relationship with him isn't based on him. It's based on what he can do for us. And that's not the foundation of a real relationship. Those of you who are married, how does it go when you base your relationship with your spouse on what they've done for you lately? If the past 20 years has taught me anything, it's that that doesn't go so well. It leads to comparison, to resentment, to guilt. It drives us apart. It it doesn't bring us together. But if I focus on who Ginger is, Well, that's the foundation of love. And really focusing our eyes on the signs, on what God does, on the blessings he gives us, that's just another way of focusing on our circumstances. And those circumstances are always going to be darkness compared to him. Remember Peter stepping out of the boat to walk toward Jesus. When he kept his eyes on Jesus, he was fine. In fact, he was walking on the water. But then he looked at the wind and the waves, to the storm swirling around him in the darkest part of the night, and he began to sink. When we look for God's signs, we're still looking at the wind and the waves, not at the light of Jesus. To understand what it means to be the light of the world, we need to remember that just because we have light, it doesn't mean that there won't be darkness. We need to see that lamps can't light themselves in the darkness. We have to connect to the light of Jesus. And third, 
lamps only work if they have oil. Now that's kind of basic, isn't it? We all understand that principle, but how quickly we forget it. How many of you have run out of gas in your car? A lot of you are brave enough to admit that. I've done it once. It was actually coming back from one of our Slavic village work weekends uh, about five or six years ago. We left home in the morning and I saw the low fuel light come on in our van. Now, I won't mention who had forgotten to fill up the van because focusing on what our spouses do for us isn't helpful. <clears throat> we were already running late, so I figured I'd stop for gas sometime during the day. But we went from one work site to a second and I didn't pass a gas station. And I knew the low fuel light was awfully pessimistic on the van, so I figured I'd have enough to get us back to North Olmsted. But at the end of the day, on the ramp from I-480 to Great Northern Boulevard right over here, the steering suddenly got very heavy, the tack needle dropped to zero, and I coasted the van onto the shoulder with a six-year-old Wilson in the back seat and a dead cell phone battery. And I might have said something I regret. But God provided the Carolees who were also coming back from Slavic Village, and they pulled over, and they picked Wilson up and brought him just down the road to the church, and they called Ginger, who came to my rescue with a gas can. Cars only work if they have gas, and oil lamps only work if they have oil. And I'd suggest to you this morning that the gospel is the oil for our lamps. Think about the uses of olive oil that I mentioned earlier. It was used in making bread, and Jesus said, I am the bread of life. It was used for healing, and Jesus is our great physician. It was used for anointing, and Jesus is our great high priest. He is the king, the eternal son of David. And oil was used in sacrifices. I'd never really thought about this much before, but where did Jesus go on the night he was betrayed? He took his disciples outside Jerusalem to the foot of the Mount of Olives, to a place called Gethsemane. That garden was actually an orchard of olive trees. It's still there with some trees estimated to be a thousand years old. The name Gethsemane means the oil press. To turn olives into olive oil, they have to be pressed. They're crushed with a great weight placed on them so that they can make that valuable oil. Oil for lamps, oil for food, oil for healing, oil for anointing, oil for sacrifice. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed.
The truth of the gospel is we can't do it on our own. We've all sinned, you and I. We can't live a life that's good enough. We can't get to heaven on our own merits. But the true light, who gives light to everyone, came into the world at Christmas. He became flesh and made his dwelling among us. He lived the perfect life that you and I can't live. He willingly went from that olive grove to the cross. And we receive grace and truth from him. All we have to do is look to him, confess our own failure, give up our darkness, and follow him. And his light will fill us. But of course, it doesn't end there. Lamps only work if they have oil. We need Jesus to light our lamps, but if we then try to shine without being filled up with the truth of the gospel, without allowing him to fill us over and over again, we'll just try to burn on human effort and human wisdom and human strength, and we'll burn out. We need to be filled up. Even though we have light, there will still be darkness. We can't light ourselves. We can only be lamps with the oil of the gospel, and we need to shine as lights in the world. Paul put it this way in his letter to the church at Ephesus. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. This is why it is said, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. One of the beautiful things about our new church building here is the atrium out there. Those big, beautiful windows are there for a reason. It's to provide an opportunity for those with the spiritual gift of window washing. <clears throat> but the windows aren't really there for us to have a nice view out. As big as they are, you know, the sky can be pretty sometimes, but let's be honest, this is Cleveland. Occasionally, I'll spot a nice old car driving past, but the Burntwood Tavern and the hotel really aren't all that much to look at. No, the windows were built for others to see in. Last Wednesday, just before our Thanksgiving Eve service, I went across the street and snapped this photo. The lights inside shone out through those big windows.
But I thought, you know, that alone really doesn't do very much. When I used to work downtown, I'd occasionally stay late at the office, and I'd glance out my window at some of the skyscrapers I could see. They were all lit up, shining out through big windows, but they were just empty offices, empty holes with no life inside. We can only shine as lamps when we realize that this building is not the church. It's a meeting place. We're very thankful for it. But those windows out there only shine when the real church arrives. And we worship and learn and laugh and cry and hug and then go back out into the world. If we have seen his glory, we need to live as children of the light. My friends, this Advent, don't let this just be a facade. We are the light of the world because Jesus is the light of the world. We will still face darkness but the darkness will not overcome. We can't make our own light, so we need to be filled with the truth of the gospel. And to really be the light of the world, we need to shine in the world to all those living in darkness who don't know him yet. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your light. I thank you that you did not leave us in darkness, in the futility of trying to find our own way and to be good enough to try to make it. Thank you for making the way. Lord God, even this morning we remember that we are surrounded by darkness. But God, help us to remember that you have overcome.